0: The following sermon is from Faith Bible Church, located in Murrieta, California. More information about Faith Bible Church is available at www.faith-bible.net. Well, it's a joy to be with you this morning. My name is Terrell Medina. If you don't know me, I'm the junior high pastor here. It is a joy to serve with you, uh, and it is a special privilege to preach behind this pulpit that has been so faithfully served by our pastor and my mentor and my father in the faith, Chris Mueller. So it is a high task for sure, but I am so thankful for the opportunity, especially to open it with you. If you would, open your Bibles to Romans chapter 7. Romans chapter 7. When I was determining our text for this morning, I could not think, of a more common struggle that every single true believer in Christ faces than what is explained in this text today. And just to begin our time, as a way of introduction to myself, and really just because this is what our text forces us to do, is I would like to consider my life before Christ and share a little bit about my testimony. It was at an FBC winter camp where the Lord saved me as a junior in high school. And as I look back on my testimony and I consider it, I think I can see the Lord really working in my life and drawing me to Himself. As a junior hire, it was during this time when my parents got a divorce, and my parents and my family was everything to me. My family—it was all I thought about. I cared about them so much, and so to to have this broken apart was such a great pain for me, and it left me broken. And it left me at my lowest point. And this would be what God would use to ultimately draw my heart to himself. As I have this brokenness, I go into my high school years, I'm pursuing every single sin that I can because I'm searching for some type of joy, some type of pleasure, some type of true satisfaction and love. And every time I seek after it, it always leaves me falling short. It always leaves me falling face down on the floor. Sin was killing me. It was deceiving me into thinking that it was good, into thinking that it offered some true satisfaction at all, when each and every time, it always left me feeling more empty than I did before. I did not grow up here in the gospel. I did not grow up in a Christian home. I guess we would identify ourselves as Catholic, which just meant we went to church every Easter and Christmas. Uh, I don't know what you call those people uh easter christmas people and so we would grow up and i'd never heard the gospel until one day two of my friends from high school who attend fbc invited me to an fbc high school winter camp and i agreed to go because they promised they were very convincing how it was going to be so much fun you guys are great salespeople so much fun (laughs) staying in cabins with friends Going in the snow, i have never been to the snow before, how lame. And so I was pumped. I was going to go to the snow, hang out with all my cool friends for a whole week in a row away from my parents. I'm, I'm in. And so I agreed to go. But my family at the time had no money, could not afford to send me to this winter camp. The only way that I was able to go was because you were so faithful to provide camp scholarships. And I got a full ride to this camp where the Lord saved my soul. It was at this camp, I was sitting on a bunk bed in a cabin after a morning session about sin. And I watched over time as each of my friends, who I thought were perfect Christians, who I thought were the coolest people ever, they had so much joy in them every time I saw them, I watched as each one of them would confess their sins in complete brokenness. With many tears, they wept over their sin, and I watched as it was coming to me, and I'm, I'm getting nervous. I'm thinking, what am I going to, going to say in front of all these people? And so it finally comes to me, and all I could do was spew out everything I thought was sin. And in that moment, the Lord broke me, revealed my own sinfulness to me, and I realized for the first time that I was a wretched sinner in need of a Savior. And it was at that time that our high school pastor, Morgan Maitland, shared the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ, that he died for me, that he rose from the dead three days later, and all I must do is put my faith in him, turn away from my sins, and at that moment, I did exactly that, and the Lord saved my poor soul. After Christ saved me, as if his amazing saving grace wasn't enough, as if the freedom from sin wasn't already too much to bear, I was so overjoyed. I came back down that mountain, started to faithfully attend this church, and you embraced me immediately. You took me in as one of your own, you invested into me, you discipled me, you poured everything into me. I remember in my early years uh, first year of being saved, uh, Morgan Maitland, our high school at the time high school pastor at the time, invested into me, discipled me, I remember weeping with him through many uh, trials with many tears as I worked through my sin. He gave me my first ever preaching opportunity in high school ministry. I remember the following year, uh, Robert Dawson, who was just up here, one of our elders in 2017, took me on my first missions trip to Albania. And it was on this trip that my heart was sparked for missions. I remember 2018, You supported me again, and you sent me back to Albania for two months as an intern. I came back, and I served as uh, Sean Farrell's pastoral intern in the college ministry. In 2019, you supported me again, sent me to India for three months, and then I came back, and I served in the children's ministry as Boots. Come on, Boots. Uh, All of your kids still call me Boots, by the way. It's fine. It's fine. I like it. In 2020, I served as a co-pastor of our high school ministry. In 2021, you supported me, hired me as your junior high pastor, which is still to this day such a great joy. Sheesh, it is so amazing. It's so amazing. Last year, you supported me and sent me to West Africa. This year, I just finished our training center. I'm going to, back to India in August to preach at a youth conference, and I'm going to finish seminary by the end of this year. All of this to say, I am so thankful For the amazing, wonderful kindness of our Lord in giving me the best church family. You poured into me. You poured into me and invested into me, and I am a product of your faithfulness. So to you, I am eternally thankful. After Christ saved me, I was so excited to serve him and to know more of him. But there was one thing that I did not expect as a new Christian. There was one thing that I was not anticipating. Though the Lord saved me, he gave me a new desire, a new heart. All I wanted to do was follow him. I did not want anything to do with my sin anymore. I hated it. I was disgusted by it. I wanted to follow Christ. But one thing I did not expect. Something was still lingering inside of me. Something still stained my flesh. And it was my sin. This was the conflict that I did not anticipate as a new Christian. And this is the conflict that the Apostle Paul experiences in our passage today, Romans chapter 7. Hopefully you're already there. Let me give you a little bit of a preface before we start. Transparently, if you look at your outline, we are tackling a very large passage. What was I thinking? Come on. And so as Chris says, I hope you had your oatmeal this morning. And junior hires, I hope you had your Dr. Pepper. Let's go. Uh, We won't read this all at once. Rather, we will tackle this passage one point at a time. We won't cover everything, but we'll look at Paul's main points and seek to understand it. So would you pray with me now? Because I need it. We all need it in order to study this passage. Father, we are so thankful for your amazing grace and even allowing us to open up your word in giving us your holy and perfect word in which we can come to know you, come to become more like you. And so, Lord, would you help us now as we consider Romans 7 and as we consider our great struggle with sin. Even though we're believers, even though you've regenerated us, you've freed us from the slavery to sin, we still struggle with sin. And this causes us great grief and great pain. But, Lord, would you help us today through your word, to find victory through the grace of your son. We love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, growing up in school, you learn a lot about history, and I loved history. And I learned a lot about World War I. You know about this, right? I don't think there's any veterans here today. That would be very old. Uh, world War I, we learned it was a fatal event that shook the world to its core. It was a a conflict that spanned continents, drew in nations from across the globe with millions of soldiers and civilians caught up in its deadly embrace. The war raged on for four long years, bringing a terrible toll on those who were caught in the crossfire. Yet while the gunfire and the explosions of combat claimed countless lives, it was the silent killers of disease and starvation that proved to be the greatest threat in that war. Indeed, it is estimated that almost 9 million soldiers died from non-combat causes during World War I, victims of sickness, malnutrition, disease, and other internal struggles. And while we may tend to think only of the bloodshed on the battlefield, in reality, the major cause in this war of death was the inward battles, the internal struggles most of the people who died during the war did not fall on the battlefield, but rather succumbed to the ravages of disease and illness. The main cause of death was not the obvious opposing enemy. It was the war within. Internal disease and illness, the silent killers of World War I. And friends, the same is true for you and I today. You and I have a silent killer waging war in our souls. Though trials may pain you so terribly, though persecution may shake you down to your core, it is the war within, the battle with your own sinful flesh, the silent killer of sin, which is our greatest foe and our most persistent and pressing conflict. Do you feel this great pain? Do you feel this conflict? You say, the Lord has saved me. He has set me free from bondage to sin. He has set me free and yet I still sin. I hate my sin. I want nothing to do with it anymore. Get away from me. And yet each and every day I find myself returning back to sin. It seems as though each and every day I look in the mirror and each time I look it's more filth, more dirt, More sin. You say, This is truly not what I want anymore. The Lord has given me new passions, new desires. I no longer desire sin. I desire a great love for Him to pursue Him. But my flesh still fails each and every day, and sin seems more evident in me. This is exactly what the Apostle Paul is experiencing in Romans chapter 7. Not only is Paul a believer here, he is a mature believer. He has been walking with the Lord for over two decades. And yet the conflict, the war within, despite his maturity, only grows stronger and stronger each and every day. Why is this so? Why is it this way? First John 1.5, in your outlines, look at it. And this is the message we have heard from him and declare to you that God is what? Light. And in him, There is no darkness at all. Friends, the closer we draw to this most glorious, most holy and righteous light, the more it will shine on our dark souls and the more our own sinfulness will be exposed. As Paul grows spiritually, he becomes more sensitive to sin. He becomes more aware of it. And the same is true for you and I today the closer you draw to this holy and righteous God, the more you will be exposed to the sinfulness of your own sin. And this is exactly the first point that I would like us to consider this morning. In order to find victory over the war within that's waging war in our souls, we must recognize and understand two important truths. And the first one is the sinfulness of sin. In verses 13, 24. Look down at your outline or your Bible, verse 13. Paul says, therefore, did that which is good become a cause of death for me? May it never be, rather it was sin, in order that it might be shown to be sin by effecting my death through that which is good, so that through the commandment, sin would become utterly sinful." Paul is speaking of the law of God here, that which in the previous verse, verse 12, he says is holy and righteous and good. He is saying it's not the law that is the cause of our death, it is our own sin. The law merely exposes the sinfulness of our sin, but it is sin that beats us down endlessly, that leaves us for dead. The law merely shines a light on the cause of our conflict, but it is sin that is our enemy and if we are to engage in this battle friends we must know who we are fighting against shouldn't we a puritan named ralph benning i love the puritans comments on this verse describes sin like this he says quote it cannot be but extremely useful to let men see what sin is how extremely vile how deadly mischievous, and therefore, how monstrously ugly and odious a thing sin is. Romans 7.13 denotes the malignant nature and operation of sin, its own name being the worst that can be given to it. As God is holy, all holy, only holy, altogether holy, and always holy, so sin is sinful, all sinful, only sinful, altogether sinful, and always sinful. And I love this part. As in God there is no evil, so in sin there is no good. This is our enemy. This is what we must contend with for the rest of our days. Sin is any word spoken, any thought, any deed, any action that goes against the holy and righteous character of God. Sin seeks to dethrone God, to rob Him of all of His glory. And our sins are many, aren't they? Too many to count. I bet if I give you a second right now to consider all the sins that we have committed in just the last 24 hours, it would be too many to tally. Lashing out against your spouse or your sibling or your parents with anger, impatience, selfishness, indulging in lustful thoughts, taking that inappropriate second look, Filling your eyes with darkness through social media each and every day. Just allowing it to creep in. Drowning your ears with unwholesome words. Being consumed with yourself, your own wants, your own needs, your own desires. And putting everything else, everyone else to the side. Your friends, your family, yes, even Christ to the side. I am front and center. Oh, do you feel this great pain, this struggle with sin? As I was sitting on that bunk bed at winter camp, this is what I realized for the first time, the sinfulness of my own sin, the fact that I was in constant opposition towards a holy and righteous God. My sins were too many to count, and the burden was too heavy to bear. Every single sin that you and I commit, you know this, deserves an infinite punishment. It deserves the eternal wrath of God poured out on you. And this is the punishment that you will endure if you do not submit to the Lord Jesus Christ and bow to Him as your Lord and Savior. And this is the punishment that if you're a believer in Christ, you can rejoice that Christ has taken for you. The thought of this alone should cause us, every true believer in Christ, to well up in thankfulness and be stirred up in our hatred towards sin. And so in this painful reality of every Christian, that we are no longer slaves to sin, but we still struggle with it. And so we must seek to understand this reality in order to find victory over it. So let's continue to wrestle through this with the Apostle Paul. I want us to consider... Four realities of the saved sinner. Four realities of the saved sinner. And the first one is this. Letter A. The saved sinner's conflict. The saved sinner's conflict. And I I just don't know how this happened. All of them start with the letter C. I'm, I'm just a Mueller disciple. Come on, let's go. The saved sinner's conflict. In verses 14 through 17. Paul says this. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of flesh, sold into bondage to sin. For what I am doing I do not understand, for I am not practicing what I would like to do, but I am doing the very thing I hate. But if I do the very thing I do not want to do, I agree with the law, confessing that the law is good. So now, no longer am I the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. Paul is affirming our own fleshliness. Look down again at verse 14. He says, I am of what? Come on, talk to me. I make our junior hires respond all the time. You got to talk. I am of what? Flesh. Flesh. Basically, I am fleshy. Right now, present tense, I am fleshy. And maybe you hear your junior hires coming out the door for church, and they say, I'm so what? Drippy. This means that they think they look really, really cool. Right, boys? Yeah. But Paul is saying the opposite here. He's saying, I'm not drippy. I'm fleshy. I'm the opposite of that. This flesh that I'm wearing, I do not want it. I, do want, I don't want anything to do with it. This flesh causes me to do the very thing I do not want to do. What does Paul mean by this term flesh? Flesh. He uses this term many times throughout his writing. It's not in your outline, but in Philippians 1, 21-24, he says this, For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. But if I am to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me. And I do not know which to choose, but I am hard-pressed from both directions, having the desire to depart and be with Christ, for that is very much better. I like that. Yet to remain on in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. The meaning of this flesh here is really, really obvious, right? He's talking about our earthly, bodily life. He's lamenting over the fact that the communion we have with Christ, that we can't be with Jesus in the same intimate way as we can be, as if we were in heaven with him, right? Him saying, I'm going to remain in the flesh, is the same as I'm going to remain in this physical body. And this is what we tend to think of flesh, don't we? This physical flesh that's on ourselves. And I don't want you in this message to start carving away at your flesh and to be all gross like that. No, that's not what he's talking about. Paul is talking about a new flesh in our passage, a new sense, in a moral sense. John MacArthur explains it well. He says Paul is using flesh here, it's in your outline, in a morally evil sense to describe man's unredeemed humanness that remnant of the old self, which will remain with each believer until each receives his or her glorified body. When Paul speaks of flesh in our passage, he is speaking of our old sinful nature, our old disposition, our inclinations, our fallen humanity. When Paul was an unbeliever, his fleshly desires dominated his life His and our sins were master over us, weren't they? But then, Paul received a new master. He was freed from his sin. A new master, Jesus Christ is his name, and he freed us from slavery to sin, and he made us slaves of Christ. But even though our fleshly desires no longer rule our lives, they are still present in us. Our pastor, Chris Mueller, has said, in your outline, quote, though sin does not reign in us, and nevertheless remains in us. He goes on to say, sin is dethroned, but it is still not destroyed. And as if that wasn't already flames enough, meaning that was a really good quote. He, does, he told me this the other day. I'm like, how do you come up with this? Though sin was once president of our lives, now it is only merely resident in our lives. Isn't that good? I don't know how he does it. This is our great conflict. Not that we live in sin. That would mean we're unbelievers. But that we live under sin. Paul is honest with us. He's expressing our same struggle. He's saying, I'm confused as to why I still sin as a believer. I want to live one way, but yet so often I live a totally different way. Why do I still give in to sin and temptation and trip and fall? It is because we are under the influence of sin as a believer. The law is revealing Paul's own sinfulness and reminding him and us of our great conflict that we presently live in. Christ has saved us. He has made us new. We desire to know Him and be like Him. Yet because we still live under the influence of sin, because we still live with this sinful flesh, we again and again Return back to our sin. And this is a saved sinner's conflict. But before we move on, I want to make one last comment. And that is, the very fact that you find yourself in this battle, the very fact that you find yourself in this war, the very fact that you feel a conflict waging war inside yourself should bring you blessed assurance why what does paul say in verse 15 look down at it i am not practicing what i would like to do but i am doing the very thing i what hate only the believer hates their sin Only the believer desires to put it to death and to want nothing to do with it anymore. The unbeliever is comfortable with their sin. They're okay with it. They gladly indulge in it. Each and every time they go to it, they run to it for joy, for any satisfaction. Think about your life before Christ. We happily lived in our sin, didn't we? We loved our sin. There was no fight in us against our sin. We were like a dead body being beaten over and over and over again by our sin, putting up no fight at all, all, laying there still and and not able to fight back. Boys, it is like playing Fortnite with a controller that's dead. You can't do anything, right? You're there, you're standing still, you can't move at all, and this enemy is coming towards you, and he's going to snipe you right there and kill you. We need the light switch to turn on, the batteries to be put in. And this is what Christ does for us. He makes us alive in Him. He turns on the lights. He makes us aware of our sin. He gives us a desire to follow after Him. And so we no longer desire to follow after our sin. In fact, we hate it. We're disgusted by it. And now we're in the fight. And now we're waging war. And so if you feel this conflict then that should bring you blessed assurance that you are truly in Christ because the unbeliever is not so. They're lying there still and dead being beaten over and over again. So do you feel this tension? Are you actually in the fight? If you are, then like the Apostle Paul, you will hate your sin. You will be disgusted by it. You will want nothing to do with it anymore. And you will make every effort to fight it. Are you actually in the fight? Letter B. The second point. The saved sinner's corruption. The saved sinner's corruption in verses 18 through 21. Paul says this. Look down at your outline. For I know, verse 18 That nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For the willing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. For the good that I want I do not do, but I practice the very evil that I do not want. But if I am doing the very thing I do not want, I am no longer the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. I find then the principle that evil is present in me, the one who wants to do good. Paul is like a physician, giving us the true diagnosis. Our problem is not with our circumstances. Our problem is not with the environment, though it may be tough at times. Our main problem is our own sin, our own sinfulness. Paul says, there is nothing good in me. And we know this, don't we? Romans 3.10 says, as it is written, there is none, uh, none good, none righteous, not even one. Romans 3.23, there are none who do good, Not even one, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Every Friday, I go to a middle school campus, David A. Brown Middle School. And the only person from FBC there is Michelle West. She's a teacher there. She allows us to use her room. And it has been the greatest joy to start this campus ministry. But you know what the amazing thing about it is? There are about 30 to 40 junior hires that fill that room every single week. I bring pizza, we do a Bible study together, and every single student in that room, here's the amazing part, have never been to church, do not currently go to church, do not know the gospel. They're being exposed to it for the very first time. And so I came into this and I thought, I have to lay the groundwork, I have to lay the foundation And I heard John MacArthur say one time, if he has one hour to share the gospel with somebody, he's going to spend 50 minutes talking about sin, talking about our need for a Savior. You have to build up that need. And so I sought to do this too, maybe a little bit too much uh, at first. I laid down, you know, the law. And I was like, you know, we're wretched, we're evil, we go against God, we turn away from Him, and, and we're called what? And they all yell out, Sinners! but with a smile on their face. I'm like, okay, stop smiling. Uh, you're correct. And then I go, okay, yes, because we're sinners, we deserve an infinite punishment. We deserve the eternal wrath of God for going against him. We deserve what? And they all go, hell. I'm like, you're still smiling. Stop smiling. Correct, again, right? This is what, we, they understand this. We understand this. We are corrupt. We are sinful. We deserve the punishment because of our wretched Rebellion against God. We know this, but Paul is saying something interesting here. He says in verse 18, look down at it again, for I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. He adds this clarification. Why? Because he's acknowledging the fact that we have been transformed by Christ, Christ has given us a new heart new passions, new desires. He's regenerated us. He's made us new. He has given us His righteousness. And so there is a righteousness inside of us that cannot sin, that does not desire to sin, that only desires to please God. The problem is there is still a sinful flesh attached to us. Though there is righteousness in us that wants to please God that does not sin, that wants to follow after him, we still have this sinful flesh attached to us. In the past, the way officials would punish murderers, junior hires, you'll love this, is by attaching the victim's dead body to their back, tying it to them. And what happens over time? The body rots, it decays, And all of their rotten, disgusting juices are pouring into the murderer's body. And what happens over time? They become infected. They They develop diseases. And over time, it's a torturous death. You become sick and you ultimately die from a dead body being tied to yourself. Disgusting, right? The same is true for you and I. You and I have a dead flesh attached to us. It is rotting. It is corrupt. There is nothing good in this flesh. And again, Paul is recognizing that there is a righteousness in him thanks to Christ that wants to do good, but he recognizes that attached to him is our corrupt flesh, sinful desires and inclinations that still remain in him. Uh, Classic Mueller illustration. We are like Swiss cheese so good we have holes crevices that still catch on to sin that still hang onto it that still catch it and hold on to it and we are waiting for that glorious day one day where we will be made into an imperishable rock solid wheel of parmigiano-reggiano Right? You can never never cut into that thing, crack into it. It's hard. It's solid. And so we wait till that day. But right now, we're Swiss cheese. There's holes. There's crevices. They catch on to sin. They hang on to it. This is our flesh. Until then, we must recognize the corruption of our flesh. This is the reality we live in. That's letter B. We've looked at the corruption. Now let's look at let us see the saved sinner's contradiction. The saved sinner's contradiction. In verses 22 through 23. Look back down at your outlines. Verse 22 For I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man, but I see a different law in my members, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a captive to the law of sin which is in my members. It cannot be any more polarized than this. On the one end, I desire to live for God. I desire to live in obedience to Christ. But on the other hand, our sinful flesh is being enticed. It's being pulled in. It's being deceived. Polarized. The law of his mind here refers to his new mind with his new perspective, with his new eyes, which have been opened and now can see truth with his new heart that desires to please God, with his new feet that run hard for his glory on the narrow path, with his new ears that love to hear the word of God preached, with his new mouth that loves to tell others about Jesus Christ. Haven't you received these new members? But at the same time, in this sinful flesh, there is a different law waging war Against my mind. Every part of Paul's body is under an influence from sin. His eyes, his ears, his feet, all the different members are still affected by sin. No, church, would you recognize this great contradiction? Do you feel yourself in this great contradiction? Though Christ has saved you, maybe He has even restored your marriage. Even still, you lash out against your spouse. You act out in in anger, in selfishness, in pride. Though Christ has saved you, you now hate your lustful thoughts and you want nothing to do with it. Still, at times, you indulge in it. You go back to indulging into your lust, into your flesh. Flesh still leads you to lie and to deceive in order to avoid consequences. Though you love the truth, you still lie. Though you worship a Savior who humbled himself, who died on the cross for you, who humbled himself, became a man, and then died on the cross for you, you still struggle with your prideful flesh. You still indulge in it. You still put yourself first. You still center yourself in everything, only concerned with your own desires, your own needs, instead of the desires of others. What a great contradiction we find ourselves in. It brings us great pain. It brings us great grief, doesn't it, to indulge in this, that we would indulge in the very sins that Jesus Christ died for. So this reality leads Paul, and it leads us today, to let her see the saved sinner's cry the saved sinners cry. And aren't you just feeling the weight of your sin and agreeing with Paul when he cries this out? Verse 24, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from the body of this death? Look at Paul's view of himself over time as he matures in Christ. It's in your outline. In 1 Corinthians 15, 9, he says, for I am the least of the apostles, and not worthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. He says, of the apostles, a small group, I have to be the very least of them. Six years later, after saying that, in Ephesians 3 eight, he says to me, the very least of all saints, this grace was given to proclaim to the Gentiles the good news of the unfathomable riches of Christ. He goes from saying, I'm the very least of all the apostles to I'm the very least of all the saints. Two to four years after saying that, he says this in 1 Timothy 1.15, It is a trustworthy saying and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save, what? Sinners, among whom I am the foremost. What do you think happens as you mature in Christ? that your view of yourself gets better, that you think more highly of yourself? Look at Paul, the most mature Christian I've ever, I've ever experienced, that I've read, that I've benefited from. Over time, he goes, I'm the very least of all the apostles, I'm the very least of all the saints. No, over time, I'm the very least of every single sinner who has ever lived. Is this your view of yourself? as you mature in Christ, because you're being exposed to the glorious light and your own darkness, your own sinfulness is being exposed. Paul has arrived at this conclusion. I am a wretched, evil, sinful person. And so in his great despair, he begs the question, and maybe you're here too, who will deliver me from the body of this death? Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from the body of this death? Answer, thanks be to God. Verse 25, through Jesus Christ our Lord. And as if he's sighing here, giving a summary statement. So then, on the one hand, I myself with my mind am serving the law of God, but on the other, with my flesh, the law of sin. And This is the second truth we must consider. Point number two, the sufficiency of grace. The sufficiency of grace. The Puritan I mentioned before, Ralph Venning, who commented on sin, now comments on his amazing grace. He says, quote, what a welcome then. Should Christ and his gospel have, they come with saving health to cure us of the worst of diseases and plagues, that of sin. In order to find victory over our sin, to have the great burden of sin lifted off of our shoulders, maybe as way of application, will you consider with me four aspects of God's sufficient grace? Four aspects of God's sufficient grace. The first one is this, letter A, the source of grace. The source of grace. The fuel in our engines, the wind in our sails, the motivation for this war within is to remember the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ and what he has done for us. Oh, if you are in Christ, would you remember what he has done for you? The punishment he endured on your behalf? how he loved you so dearly that he would endure this for you. And maybe you're sitting there and just like I was on those bunk beds at camp for the first time realizing the sinfulness of your own sin, the fact that you are a sinner in need of a savior, would you this day receive the grace of Christ? Though your sin is great, the grace of Christ is greater. Like we just sang, grace, grace that is greater than all our sins. The creator of the universe, Jesus Christ, loves his own so much that he willingly became a man. Colossians 2.9 says, for in him the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. Perfect man, perfect God, coming to earth, humbling himself. He lives a perfect life that you and I could never ever live. And though he's perfect, though he's sinless, he is beaten, he is mocked, he is scorned, and ultimately he is hung on a cross, the greatest form of torture. And he hangs there, and he willingly dies a physical death, but not only a physical death, an eternal death. He faces and he takes upon himself the full unrelenting wrath of God that you and I deserve. It says in Matthew 25, 41, he will say to those on his his left, depart from me into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. That's what each and every single one of you and I deserve. And this is what Jesus Christ takes upon himself on that cross because he loves his own But we do not worship a dead God, do we? No. We worship a living God. He raises from the dead three days later, defeats death, and he offers you new life today if you would put your faith in him, turn away from your sins, say, I want nothing to do with that anymore. I need, I want, I desire Christ to be with him forever. If you would call out to him today, he will save your poor soul from your sins. He will free you from your sin, and he will lavish on you the grace of Christ. Why would you hold on to your sin any longer? I know how you're feeling. It is too heavy of a burden to bear. It is too great for you. What are you doing holding on to it yourself? Look what John Owen says, he gives us a picture of Christ saying this to us. And he does say this to you today. Quote, come with your burdens. Come, you poor soul, with your guilt of sin. And maybe you say, why? What will you do with them? Why, they are mine, says Christ. This agreement I made with my Father, that I should come and take your sins and bear them away, they were my lot. Give me your burden. Give me all your sins. You do not know what to do with them. I know how to dispose of them well enough so that God will be glorified and your soul delivered. Would you this day experience the sufficient grace of God for the first time? And to those who already have, would you this day remember the glorious gospel that saved a wretch like you? Remember the source of grace. Letter B, the fuel of grace. The fuel of grace. Oh, what happens to a soul when your eyes are fixed upon him? What happens to your soul when his words are on your tongue? What happens to your soul when Christ consumes your thoughts? The fuel of grace is communion with Christ communion with him you wish to get rid of your sin you wish to wash out your sinful thoughts and attitudes you wish to cast out the darkness then run to your savior and commune with your god dig deep into his word seek to know more of him each day get on your knees in prayer and beg him to overcome your weaknesses commune with him Samuel Rutherford says this, there are infinite piles in his love that the saint will never be able to unfold. I urge upon you a nearer and growing communion with Christ. There are curtains to be drawn back in Christ that we have never seen. There are new foldings of love in him. Dig deep, sweat, labor, and take pains for him. And set by as much time in the day for him as you can. He will be one with labor. Live on Christ's love. Commune with your God. Run to him. Drown yourself in his glorious word. And watch as your sinful flesh is carved away. I love to use this illustration with our junior hires. Imagine a wife who never talks to her husband. Imagine a wife who never desires to know anything about her husband. She walks into the house and she gets on the phone right to her girlies and starts talking to them and ignores her husband completely. She knows nothing about her husband. She completely ignores him. Would this be a good wife? No, terrible, right? And yet here you are, the bride of Christ. Do you commune? Do you talk? Do you know your God? Commune with him. Commune with him. Like we learned about last week, Christ and the cross should be our obsession, shouldn't it? It should consume our every thought. Psalm 42, verse 1, As the deer pants for the water brooks, so my soul thirsts for you and pants for you, O God. Communion with Christ will be the fuel that gets you through this battle with your sinful flesh. Letter C, the power of grace, the power of grace. The power then in which we wage war with our sin is by relying on the Holy Spirit. This is what Romans 8 is all about, the following chapter. Look down at your Bibles, Romans 8, 1 through 4. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and of death. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh, so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the what? Spirit. We cannot engage in this war within on our own. We must rely on the Holy Spirit. We must beg him to help us, to overcome our weaknesses, to work through us, through constant prayer, begging him to overcome our weaknesses. I love to use the illustration also of a teeter-totter. What does a teeter-totter do? One side goes up, the other side goes down. The other side goes up, the other side goes down. Same is true for you. If we magnify ourselves we lift ourselves high. We rely on our own strength. We are putting Christ low. We are robbing him of all his glory. And we are relinquishing the only true source of power that we have. No, lift Christ high. Put him high and rely on him fully. Would you rely on the Holy Spirit? You may have a weak faith. You may be struggling. But one thing you do have. A strong Christ. Cling to this Christ. Hang on to him. Depend on him. And watch as his grace is lavished upon you. And lastly, letter D. The hope of grace. The hope of grace. We have been saved. We have been sanctified. And one day, we will be glorified with him. Romans 8, 16 through 18. The Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God, so sweet. And if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with Him so that we may also be glorified with Him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. On that great day, our battle with sin will be over. It will be over, and we will rest in the arms of our Savior. Surely, those who survived World War I had an amazing homecoming. They came home to their families, to their friends, to their nation with a great celebration, surely. But the homecoming that awaits you and I, Christian, will be so much sweeter. Can you even think about that day? One moment in heaven will make an entire life waging war against our sin worth it. But we are not just promised one moment there, are we? We are promised an eternity with him. An eternity. I will live this life waging war against my sin a thousand times over if I could just have one moment with Him, but I shall have eternity with Him. So do not be discouraged with your battle with sin. Hold on and hold up. Take courage. Hold on to Him tightly. Grab His hand. Grip it tightly. Press on. And heaven will make amends for all. Let's pray. Father, we praise You and we thank You for Your glorious Word. Lord, we are so overjoyed and so overwhelmed with your amazing grace that you have lavished upon us. And Lord, if there's anyone here who has not yet experienced this grace, would you this day open their eyes, free them from their sin, and let them know you, experience the grace and the joy and the true love that comes from knowing your son. Lord, we are so thankful for what you have done for us. We have great pain great grief every time we engage and indulge in our sin this battle is hard it is long and though at times we may feel discouraged lord would you help us would you motivate us would you remind us of your wonderful grace and what your son has done on our behalf let us not be dependent on ourselves let us rely on your spirit and let us press on with him working through us we need you lord We love you. We praise you. We give you all the glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening today. Sermon audio from the last three years is available by podcast, and a larger archive from Chris Mueller and Faith Bible Church can be found at media.faith-bible.net. And if you would, please leave us a review on iTunes. It helps a lot. Thanks, and have a great day.